Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 97 of Cinescope. I'm glad to be here once again talking with my friend Eric Woods. Eric, how are you doing? I'm great. Great to be here. Yeah, this is a movie that is a departure <laughs> from the movies we've talked about in the past, considering the last two movies you and I have talked about on this show are yeah. Raiders of the Last Dark and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And in yeah. fact, here on my sound pad, there's still one last button that I haven't needed to replace yet that's got the Nazi theme from <laughs> Last Crusade on it, along with all these <laughs> Mozart tracks that we're going to be talking about. Right. Nice contrast. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's great to be talking about something other than Indiana Jones. As much as I love Indiana Jones, it's just like every other podcast I'm on, I'm talking about Indiana Jones. So it's, uh, or that or Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not even a Trekkie, so. Right. I don't even know what it was that brought this film up into the conversation, but you said something about Amadeus. And I was like, sure, I'll, I'll put you on the, the list and we'll talk about it next time you're on the show. And yeah. so here we are. Oh, this is great. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm so looking forward to talking to you. Um, about this movie because it's just one of my all-time favorites do you want to remind everybody out there how they might know you where they might find you what kind of stuff you do in your day-to-day -day life well i mean most people know me from cinematic sound radio uh it's an almost 25 year old uh radio show podcast about film tv and video game music and you can find uh the show on uh cinematicsound.net or all your favorite pod catchers and so that's where uh, most people uh, know me from, but uh, in my day-to-day -day life, uh, I work in the video industry. I'm a cinematographer and editor. Awesome. I've been a fan of your podcast for a long time, and so it's always a treat to talk to you and to talk about the music, yes, but also sometimes it's nice to just sort of break away from what you're known for and just talk about yeah. something different. Indeed. So we are talking about... Amadeus today, the 1984 movie directed by Milos Forman. It came out on September 19th of 1984. Forman is also known for directing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is another one of my favorite movies that we've talked about on this show. He also directed Hair, Ragtime, and The People vs. Larry Flint. It was written by Peter Schaefer, and the movie itself is based on Peter Schaefer's play of the same name. So it's cool to have the playwright writing the script for the movie. So I'm sure that contributes to the quality of the film additionally. The music is by <laughs> Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. That's all that really needs to be said there. It's not like he has a filmography <laughs> that I can read out. <laughs> He's Mozart. <laughs> but the, yeah. the music was conducted and supervised by Neville Mariner. It stars F. Murray Abraham, Tom Hulse, Elizabeth Barrage, Roy Dotris, Simon Callow, Kristen Ebersole, Jeffrey Jones, Charles Kay, Kenneth McMillan, and I kind of cheekily put down Kenny Baker because he does make an appearance in this movie. And Kenny yes, Baker, everybody would know from R2-D2. Our first experience with this movie, do you have anything that sticks out to you as far as your first viewings or your viewings over the years, Eric? Yeah, the first viewing was quite an awakening for me. I saw it in music class. Um, I had no idea what it was. It was like, oh, man, we're going to watch a movie about Mozart. And I really wasn't <laughs> into classical music. I, I, I knew a little bit of it through elementary school when we you know, studied some of the classical grades. But it was just never something that caught my eye or my ear. And I was more of the, I like movie scores. So when we saw this, I was in grade 9 or 10 when we first saw this and I was blown away. And the, the biggest problem that we had was that our classes were only 75 minutes long. So we had to watch this over the course of two days. 
And I just wanted to keep on going. I was just completely enveloped by this movie from frame one. And I had no idea where this movie was going or what this was or, or what was happening. And then it started to break down, you know, the composition process. You know, the, the very famous scene of, of Salieri uh, going over Serenade for Winds. And I was just like, what? this is how it's done. I mean, this is how composers work. And I, you know, it, I was so naive and so fresh and new that I really didn't know that, you know, anything about orchestration or whatnot. And and so I just, it was an instant, like most of the, my favorite movies of all time, it just instantly grabbed me and it just stayed with me for a long time. And the great thing about this music class is that we had, we watched this film each and every year. So I saw in grade, it was either grade nine or 10, then 11, 12. And here in Canada, we had um, grade 13. Mm -hmm. So I saw it for years in a row. And of course, you know, I now owned the the DVD, the Blu-ray, and it's a, a yearly watch for me. And it's one of my, I would say, 10 favorite films of all time. It's funny. My first experience with this movie was also in a music class. <laughs> Although That's for great. me, it was college. And as a music major in college, I took a few semesters of music history classes. And so we, if we didn't watch the whole thing in one of those classes, we watched pretty big chunks of it. And that was my first introduction to it. And I later picked it up for myself so that I could watch the full thing. And I, I had the Blu-ray as well. I watched the director's cut to prepare for this episode. And I believe you did as yeah. well. Yes, uh, I did. Which yeah. adds about 20 extra minutes. I couldn't tell mm -hmm. you what is completely new, what isn't. But uh, I'm sure you can find that information out there. But my first full viewing, I don't remember a whole lot except that I did like it. But the things that stick with me most over the years are the scene where Mozart, quote, fixes Salieri's entry march that he composed. Yes. <laughs> and then obviously yes. the, the ending where he's composing the confutatis with Salieri notating it for him. Those are the, the things that have always stuck out in my mind. And I told Eric before we hit record that I had a fun story related to the last time I watched this. This is my first watch through in many years, and I'd kind of been preserving <laughs> my last watch through. Because the last time I watched Amadeus, I was in Salzburg, Vienna. Oh, wow. Or Salzburg, Austria. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I, I went to the Mozart house and was able to walk uh. around and, and be a part of that. And I did go to Vienna as well, which is how I mixed my words together. And there's yeah. Mozart attractions in Vienna as well. And so we were in Salzburg back in summer 2014. And, and I thought, I'm never going to have this opportunity again. <laughs> or if I do, it's going to be a long, long time. So we watched Amadeus in our hotel room in Salzburg, Austria. That is incredible. I want to do that one day. Like, I have a friend who's, uh, who's Slovakian. And so obviously they're next to Prague where most of this film, you know, was shot. And one day I just want to visit every single location that they shot this film in. Because mm -hmm. I just, I love these, I love costume dramas. I love stuff that takes place back three, four hundred years ago. And just seeing the architecture and the fact that Prague really has kind of like stood still in time and hasn't really modernized itself. And the fact that you were able to, to watch this movie like in the location where, where Mozart, you know, would write this music and perform this music is just that must be absolutely thrilling. It really was being a, a musician who had studied Mozart pretty extensively. I even wrote a research paper in one of those music history classes in college where I was uh, comparing the arias uh, from the Queen of the Night in The Magic Flute. And so I, I've done some extensive research on Mozart in various 
forms. And I, I told Eric also that there was one year in college choir where we sang the Mozart Requiem. And so I was very familiar with Confutatis. It's been one of my favorites of his for a long time. And then the Dies Irae, of course. I, I just, I love Mozart. It's not necessarily that I go to him often when I'm trying to find something pleasant to listen to, but revisiting this movie especially always puts me in a Mozart mood. And at work recently, I've been able to listen to a lot more film music. And so I've played the Amadeus <laughs> soundtrack while at work, and it, it's been really, really nice. I've been the same way. I have the two CD set that came out, the, uh, the I guess the special edition, well, when the director's cut came out. The, so that album I have, and that's been almost on repeat along with a lot of Ennio Morricone <laughs> because of his because uh, of his passing but i mean to prepare for this this uh this album is if 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 you don't have it out there go get it and if you're not very familiar with mozart it's probably the perfect album to get yourself involved in the the you know the the master's music absolutely i mean the fact that we have a movie here that's 3 hours long if you're watching the director's cut and yeah. it doesn't need any other film score aside from this music that was written 200, I'm making sure I'm doing my math right, yeah, 200-ish plus years ago. I think that speaks to it. You were telling me a story before we started again, Eric, that the first time you heard the DS Irae was in one of the X-Men movies, and you thought that John Ottman had composed it just because of how modern it sounds in a way. Exactly. That's it. I, I, we were talking about just before the show started how... Some of this stuff is just timeless, absolutely timeless. I find that most of the choral work feels like it could be written today, but it could be in any numerous film scores written today. So that's where Mozart's uh, influence is, is, is greatly heard in, in film scores today. I just feel like that stuff is just so incredible. But yeah, the Dies Irae, I mean, obviously I'd heard it before, but never really made that connection or never really thought, oh, wow, that's... Okay, this, this is where I really heard it for the first time and thought, wow, that's an amazing piece of choral music and John Ottman did an incredible job you know scoring that 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 uh, nightcrawler sequence where he was attacking the White House <laughs> only to find out that you know it was an arrangement of a Mozart piece and I'm like oh my god oh my god that is such an incredible work and again that just helped me dive deeper into the work of Mozart and discover classical music it's, that's the greatest thing about film music for me is that it's helped me to discover the concert works, the classical work, the greats of the past. And it's just great to hear. I mean, and then the way that they approached music, you're right, in this film, it's, I mean, they, they cut around and shot to the music. These pieces of music were specifically chosen for this music, carefully chosen and recorded and brilliantly edited as if Mozart had scored his own movie. Let's go ahead and move into talking about the story a little bit. And I, I do want to offer a disclaimer, listeners. I'm sure all of you are very smart, but I just want to be very clear in saying that this is a work of fiction. This relationship between Salieri and Mozart did not exist as it is portrayed in this film. What you should watch this film knowing is that Mozart was a real person and so is Salieri. All these are real people, but we are talking about characters, not the, not the historical figures. But you should still hopefully walk away with an appreciation for Mozart and his genius, because that mm -hmm. is something in the story that is highlighted so well. Time and time again, something that is highlighted in Mozart's character is that he does everything against the grain, does everything in a way that nobody has ever done it before. In the, the Requiem scene where they're writing the Confutatis late in the film, Mozart says, okay, we're, we're doubling the instruments like this with the voices. 
And Salieri's mind just cannot comprehend. He says, I, I don't get it. I don't know what you're trying to tell me because this doesn't make sense. But then when he starts imagining it in his head and starts, oh, okay, I see it. I, I hear it now. It's just he never would have thought to approach it in the way that Mozart did. And every time we are treated to a moment where we're exploring Mozart's music or we're witnessing him premiere something new or whatever, it, whenever his music is featured, we are being treated to a man who is at the height of his craft and is able to approach that craft in a way that nobody has done it before. Then you could bring up the scenes where Salieri first sees Mozart's music and it's all first draft. Nothing has changed. Everything is perfect. And he's <laughs> flipping through each and every piece and oh my God, the music editing is so awesome because you're just, you're inside Salieri's mind and every piece he flips through, it's, it's, a, it's a new concerto, it's a new opera, it's a new whatever. And it's, it, it, and the frustration in his face as well because he realizes that, you know, this is, well, this is the voice of God, right? And that's right. what he was hoping to achieve. And he's just absolutely blown away by it. And I, and I love that scene where he's just flipping through it and just, he's, he's in love with the music, but he's also increasingly frustrated by what he's seeing. That is something that is outstanding about F. Murray Abraham's role here. He did win the Academy Award for this movie. This movie was nominated for 11 and one, the major ones. And the way that Abraham is able to display both the, the regret and the awe, as well as the, the contempt that he has for Mozart and the respect he has for him, all those complicated emotions, he's able to communicate all those at once. And I think that scene that you were just talking about is probably the, the scene where it is best displayed. He's He's frustrated, but he's overcome with emotion because of the beauty of what he's witnessing at the same time. And God, why isn't it me? Oh, but man, look at this. And so it's just like this back and forth of he doesn't know how to feel about Mozart. And it's fantastic to see the struggle within the character. Yeah, he's incredibly jealous of the skill of Mozart. And, and, but he, like you said, he's in complete awe. And again, forgive me for not remembering the piece of, uh, it was either, it was one of the operas that failed. And I'm not sure whether it was the one, I don't think it was the yawning one. Maybe it was where the king yawned. And then, you know, because of that, the, the show might, will fail a certain amount of nights uh, later. But uh, there was a point where he went and saw one of, I guess, Mozart's failures, quote unquote failures. But as much as he was as much as he hated Mozart and was jealous, he went to every single showing because he appreciated the art, the music, and what he created, even though he was so, like I said, jealous and hateful and spiteful uh, towards Mozart. I love the framing device of the movie. We open with Salieri shouting out, an older Salieri shouting out and distraught and apologizing to Mozart. Mozart, forgive me, I've killed Mozart. And yeah. it's this man confessing to a murder, he claims, many years previous. I killed Mozart, and he attempts suicide. But then there's this question introduced, is it because of a guilt? Or is it because of a life, of his life, that he sees as inferior to Mozart? Like, there, there's, again, those conflicting emotions looking back at his time with Mozart that led to him in this moment of his old age just crying out for help, in a way. And when the, the priest comes to visit him in the asylum, 
and is trying to get a confession since this man did just confess to murder, at least that's what he claims, he plays a little snippet of his music. And oh, nope, don't recognize that. Plays another little snippet. Oh, don't recognize that. Okay, what about this one? Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> and of course, the priest recognizes that one. Says, oh, you wrote that? Yeah. Oh, no, I did not write that. That is Mozart. And that, that sets us off on this journey of exploring through Salieri's eyes the, the genius of Mozart, but also, again, just the hate he has for him because of sort of the, the stolen talent that he had wanted for himself. And I don't think there's a lot of credit given to the older Salieri uh, sequences. Although, uh, you know, one of the greatest moments in the entire film um, where he's describing the serenade for winds um, is takes place during that. But the, the, the way that he, F. Murray Abraham, is telling the story, and this is actually one of the first things that they shot. Um, I think they took about three weeks to uh, record everything in the... Uh, between F. Murray Abraham and the um, and the priest, it's an incredible set of sequences. And one person that doesn't get enough credit is the priest himself or the father. It's Richard Frank who has mm-hmm. to sit there and react to this story. And every cutaway, you see an incredible shock. Mm-hmm. in his face as as more and more is poured onto him. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't think he even expected to hear this story when he came and asked for, you know, Salieri's, uh, I think he asked for his confession. Right. But I think that poor Richard Frank had to sit there and and and, and react and, and watch this Academy Award-winning performance by F. Murray Abraham. But I think without him, those sequences wouldn't have been as powerful because I think that... We're in the priest's shoes at that point because we are listening to this story. And, and we are, too, in the same time, just in shock and awe by what we are witnessing over the, over the three hours of this film. Right. And it's especially interesting since Salieri is telling this, this story from the viewpoint of a man who was asking for something from God and then eventually turned away from God in a certain way because of the neglect he felt at the hands of the father. And to see this priest witness this man's fall from faith and to say the, for him to see how disparaging of God Salieri is and the contempt he not only has for Mozart now, but also has felt for God over the years because of the neglect he has felt. And so witnessing the priest as a man of faith and as a man of God see this man fall away from God in the retelling of his past injustices does give the story a little bit more heft. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, if we were talking about themes of the movie, I mean, that is one of the major themes, the obvious major theme is the man's relation to God. And the funny thing is I'm, I am not religious at all. I do appreciate people who are religious and, but I'm always fascinated by religion in movies or television and, and how it affects people. And to see one just uh, give themselves over to a higher power. And that's one of the most fascinating aspects of this film is, is how deeply religious he is. And, and when he offered his service and chastity to God as a, as a young boy, and then seeing a few miracles happen so that he could eventually move on to, to, to working in music. But just to see him struggle as a composer and find the strength and the creativity and having to beg uh, for, for God to give him this power, this, this creativity, 
it's just, it's fascinating to, to see, like I said, how people will simply just try to uh, hope it, hope creativity or hope anything in their lives and hope that God is going to be looking at them at that very moment and, and give them what they need. And, and so that's always been a fascinating aspect for me in any sort of a religious themed film show book or, or whatever. So that's, um, it's very interesting. And I mean, F. Murray Everett's incredible during those sequences as well. You could just see the frustration on his face. And then, you know, when he gives up on God, it's unreal. And I, I, I can't imagine how much that would have hurt him to, to just know that the person or the highest, the high power that he was hoping was going to give him everything that he needed was was letting him down, especially with God, well, as he said, was God's voice was coming through this vulgar man that was Mozart instead of Salieri, who basically gave himself to God as an, at an early age. So, uh, like I said, very fascinating for me and a wonderful, interesting uh, story plot point in the movie. He's bargaining with God, which is, oh, you know, yeah. what they tell you not to do. <laughs> like, mm. God doesn't bargain. Yeah, and, and that's what I don't, I don't understand. It, it, it really is very foreign to me. Um, uh -huh. it's, I, I'm not sure whether you're religious or not, but it's just is something that I don't completely understand. Right. I mean, they, they tell us you're not supposed to bargain with God. You know, it, it's not, God doesn't make deals with people. God does have a plan. Whatever you want to say about that kind of stuff. I mean, Salieri has his viewpoint, and his viewpoint is if I do this, this, and this, then God will give me this. And then right. he kind of throws a fit when that doesn't happen. Because, I mean, well, that's not necessarily what's supposed to happen. But what we do see from Salieri, at least in the beginning part of his life, is that he had to work hard to gain his status. Yes, there was some mm -hmm. luck. There was some form of answered prayer involved in the way his, his father died, and he was able right. to come to the city of musicians of Vienna. But after that, it didn't really come easy to him. He found sanctuary with Emperor Joseph, who is not a genius musician. He is a simple man who likes simple things and likes simple music. And Salieri is able to fulfill that man's needs. And so he, he found a place for him. He wasn't unsuccessful. He had status. He had a house. He, he was able to live a comfortable life. But that very first scene where he falls witness to Mozart, he doesn't even know who he is. He sees yeah. Mozart playing with Constanza. He's rolling on the floor with her. He's saying naughty phrases. He's got that laugh. Oh my gosh, that laugh. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. And then when it dawns on Salieri that this is Mozart, this is the man he'd been looking around to see, he absolutely can't believe it. And then he, he thinks it's like a joke. He's like, surely this, this, this piece has to be a fluke. Right. This, this, level of genius cannot come from that. I've worked all my life to get to where I am and I'm not capable of that. And so that from that little boy has to be a stroke of luck and that's all it is. But then that's when he looks at the music and he says it's simple on the page, but then it starts to build and he's moved to tears just imagining the music on the page. He's not even listening to it at the time. He's moved to tears just looking at it and reading it. So, yeah, <laughs> to see this man who's bargained with God and then is upset when things don't work out for him. And the thing is, it's not even that things don't work out for him. You know, like I said, he was successful. It's mm -hmm. just how he starts to measure success against Mozart is Mozart's level, Mozart's craft is higher than his. 
even if Salieri's status is higher than Mozart's. And so it's like a, a weird sense of priorities for him. I understand, as a musician, I understand the, the desire to hone your craft to the level that Mozart has. But I don't know if I fully understand the obsession and the, the thirst for almost revenge in a certain way over this man who seemingly took the talent that you thought was deserved to you by God from you. That's a great point. It's, it's, it is uh, kind of mind-blowing that, you know, you could go that far. But, I mean, it's, 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 it's part jealousy. It's the whole, you know, mediocrity versus, versus genius theme, I guess. Um, you know, when you, you think that you are really good at something, and then all of a sudden someone steps in and just completely blows you away with something that you've never heard before, and you're thinking, how in the world did I not come up with that? And then it's either you can learn from that or you can just obsess over that and just become so cold and and evil about it. And, you know, I, I've been there. You know, you just think that, you know, you've done something incredible. And then all of a sudden, I mean, well, I'll say it, like in the video industry, I mean, I'm, you know, almost mid-40s. I think I do a pretty good job. But then, you know, I go online looking for some help on how to do maybe a simple animation. And all of a sudden I see a bunch of 20-year-olds who are just doing some of the most outstanding work. And I'm like, how in the world <laughs> are they coming up with this stuff? And it's like, well, am I good enough then? It's that kind of like imposter syndrome. It's like, you know, am I good? And obviously I, you know, I am. I wouldn't be in this industry for, you know, 20 plus years if I wasn't. But it's just, you know, you start thinking that way. And but then it's like you could either go, all right, so you could strip that away and say, all right, who cares how old they are? They're doing some great work. How do they do it? And let's learn from that. And I think Salieri here in this film was just, it's just utter jealousy. And just to the point where, yeah, he he then plans Mozart's death in this evil scheme to pass off the Requiem as his own work when Mozart dies. It's insane. It's crazy. <laughs> and, I, and I love that aspect of the movie. That's the last hour of it. And it's just like, that's when the whole film basically turns around into something completely different. And it's uh, it's amazing how far some people will go in order to gain or, or achieve greatness. Well, even though Salieri doesn't have the talent of Mozart, he does have the more of a status with the emperor and just in in the upper class, I guess you could say. He sees other people falling in love with Mozart because of his craft. And I think that's another aspect, another layer of his jealousy. He, he's jealous of the craft itself, but then to see the way people react to Mozart's level of musical competence. Like, for example, I, I can't remember her name exactly, but the, is it Katarina or Catalina? The woman he gives voice lessons to. Mm -hmm. And even though he had sworn a vow of chastity to God for his musical talents, and he'd upheld them he still had lust for this woman in his heart and when mozart comes to town who does she fall in love with not salieri she falls in love with mozart and it's pretty heavily hinted that they even slept together and That's so right. this this thing that salieri had promised himself away from but still desired has now gone with mozart and then he breaks her heart and has her at the same time. It's, it's like this complicated relationship, and it tears him apart even further than just the musical talent. This woman he loved was with Mozart. That's not cool. Then you mentioned the, the writing down music without mistakes. Like 
as if he was taking dictation from God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That that's incredible too. I mean, even just to imagine that level of talent. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> kind of. I, I took music theory courses in college, um, and oral skills and dictation was one of the things we had to practice. And I couldn't do it without mistakes the first time. <laughs> and I was listening to other people's music, not writing it myself. So I I understand Salieri's frustrations in a lot of ways for sure. Yep. Yep. I agree. And Mozart, talking about Mozart a little bit. Uh, we've been talking a lot about Salieri. Mozart, mm. I think he's good-natured. Well, he he means well. He isn't seeking out to be overly rude to people or to think he's better, like holding his nose up at people. I think Mozart knows that he is the best, but I don't think he's out there to necessarily rub it in people's faces. Was that something you'd maybe agree with? He's prideful and yes. he's not afraid to tell the world, but I don't think he would like, I don't know, make fun of Salieri because he's not as, well, I guess he literally does that same thing. But you know, do you know what I mean? He's not out there to put people down. His relationship with Salieri, despite knowing that he's a better composer than him, is amiable and he isn't trying, he, he's always cordial when dealing with Salieri directly. You know, he has, yes, he's very kind, especially after, again, I can't remember the name of the piece, but, uh, you know, Salieri, Salieri just finished a performance of one of his works, and, you know, the king said it's like the the best opera that has ever been written, and and then, uh, you know, a Mozart comes down from the balcony, and he's trying to offer words of positivity and encouragement, and you can see him fighting for, to say something nice, because obviously the music was fine, I would guess, but in Mozart's mind, it was inferior, but he, you're right, he wasn't going to go out of his way and insult him. Um, right. And and there was always these conversations where I think he was looking for some sort of validation from people that, you know, my work is great, but it's, I think it's more than great. And he was always talking about this is going to be the greatest opera you've ever heard. This is going to be greatest this. This is going to be the greatest that. And I think he knew that he was, I think he knew he was good. And I think there was a bit of arrogance in the air about him as well. Um, but what I found fascinating about, about him was that he, you know, for as absurd of a character that he was and how vulgar he was and childlike he was, the moment it came down to talking about music or composing music or or anything involved in music, he was dead serious. Mm -hmm. Absolutely dead serious. And, you know, we talked about the scene where Salieri's in the parlor, I guess, and he's he's trying to sneak some treats and he sees uh, Stanzi and Mozart farting around under the table. And, um, you know, they're doing, talking vulgar, you know, speaking vulgar words and talking backwards and, and you know, they, they, they're like a bunch of eight-year-olds. Right. But the moment his music starts, the, the change in his expression and the way that he holds himself up, it, there's a, it's like, oh my God, they're playing my music without me. And it's like instantaneously he grows up. And I think that's when, when it comes down to music, he acts his age. But everything else, he's still just this child in an adult's body. And I thought that that was always very interested in, in seeing that aspect of Mozart, where he's, you know, composing deep into the night and sacrificing sleep and his health to write music. That was an interesting juxtaposition between his characters, between the, the, the foul 
And like even his operas and the ideas were, were, were foul, but the music was always serious. So he's always a child writing kind of like child stories or, or vulgar stories, but the music was always perfect and adult and, and, and mature. It definitely is a very different facet of his person than his actual personality is. It's like it stands out as a completely separate trait of his. Yeah. And a recurring theme for Mozart, I think, throughout the film is that he does have this sort of immense respect for authority or for status. He, mm-hmm. he has a respect for his father and he mourns his death despite their difficulties with each other and the sort of strained relationship he has, especially in adulthood after he's moved to Vienna. And he frequently turns to Salieri for help. Salieri is a, an authority figure in his life. This whole time, he maybe thinks of Salieri as inferior to him as far as co- composition goes, but he recognizes his status and his position with Emperor Joseph, and he thinks of Salieri himself as his friend or a colleague and a man who has only shown him kindness. That's how Mozart thinks, at least. And that's, yeah. he, he says so <laughs> much in, in those closing scenes between them in Mozart's apartment as he lay dying and Salieri selfishly notating the confutatis. He says, you're my only friend. You've only shown me kindness. And I think Mozart looks at his own shortcomings in that moment versus how he perceives Salieri has treated him. But we as the audience who have spent the whole movie with Salieri and hearing the story told from his perspective know that that's very far from the truth. But Mozart, again, was, was very cordial with Salieri and didn't see the strain that existed. When you think about the ultimate bad guys in, in movies, like Salieri is up there. Just the way, And you're right, talking about that scene, it's like you know exactly what he's doing at that point. But, and then, you know, Mozart's just like just offering everything up and saying, you know, like I said, you, you've been a friend to me. Uh, you've always been good to me. And, you know, Mozart has no idea what's happening in the background. And it's so, it's so sad. <laughs> and, you know, that, that plan in itself Salieri's plan to have Mozart write his own requiem, die, and then Salieri to pass it off as a requiem that he wrote to honor Mozart. The end goal is still to honor Mozart. It's just he wants to pass off Mozart's music as his own. So it's like this dual, dual purpose where, yes, he still wants Mozart to be remembered and to be deserving of his own mass requiem, but he wants to steal the credit as the writer of it. So there's, there's always this warring respect versus whatever else you want to call it in Salieri where, and we've already talked about this a little bit, but Salieri, he's so conflicted over his feelings for Mozart just because he recognizes the genius and is so jealous of it for himself. Yep, absolutely. Uh, is there anything else we wanted to say about either of those characters? No, no, I think they play so well off each other. And I felt really bad for Tom Holtz, who had to go up against F. Murray Abraham during the Academy Awards. They were both up for Best Actor. And one of the kindest things I think I've ever seen at an awards ceremony was when F. Murray Abraham got up on the on the stage. He, he says, the, he's, and I'm not quoting this, but he says, the only way this award and this recognition could be any better is if Tom Holtz was standing beside me up on stage. Mm-hmm. And the camera cuts to Tom and he's sitting there and he just, he understands how appreciative F. Murray Abraham was of him. And it's, it's almost an interesting contrast because you could see like it's whether it's like, you know, it's a Mozart Salieri thing, but really F. Murray Abraham is truly 
genuinely appreciative of what Tom did for his performance, and and that was it. It was it was completely and utterly genuine, and and, and I just wish both of them could have won. But seeing Tom just he's he almost in tears when that happens, and I thought that was an interesting bookend to this whole film. That that's kind of the way that it all wrapped up. But they were just incredible on screen together, and and I, the whole entire cast was from everybody from the secondary characters to it's rare to see such perfect casting and even meg tilly you know was supposed to be in this film playing uh stanzi and Mm -hmm. uh what happened to her she tore a ligament in her leg and so you know now you have elizabeth barrage in in the role and i mean could you see anybody else in that role (laughs) i can't i don't think i could no (laughs) so i mean just everything everything came together perfectly in this movie and um it's all due to some incredible casting. To sort of cap off my Mozart thoughts uh, before we maybe talk about a couple other characters, if we have any thoughts on those, it's sad to see the way his health deteriorates mm-hmm. over time, knowing that that, I mean, is pretty much, that is pretty much true to life. I mean, he died at the age of 36. He was yeah. not old. He, he did not get to see this long, illustrious career. It was only long and illustrious in the fact that it started when he was like two, right? <laughs> yeah. um, so they hint at his alcoholism pretty early on in the film as he's starting to seek work and it becomes more noticeable with the death of his father when he's conducting Don Giovanni after the loss of his father. And this is a pretty transparent opera that is referencing his father um, in the sort of the apparition, the specter of him in his life. It, it's sad to see his genius in such contrast with his drunkenness and his, his desperation for money. There's that one scene where he shows up to the house where he had shown up earlier in the film to teach lessons. And then the dogs were so incessant that he thought himself above that particular teaching position. And honestly, mm-hmm. he probably was. But at the end of the film, when he goes, he's far below that teaching position. He shows up drunk and slurring his words and just the farthest thing from professional you can imagine but it's because he's so desperate for any kind of money whatsoever and then his funeral like i said salieri had status mozart did not there were like five people who showed up for mozart's funeral he died of no importance he he was buried in a mass unmarked grave again it's that contrast of this man who had such genius and who is now so well remembered but in his time he was sort of underappreciated in a way and he died poor and alone basically and it's just sad to see this man who has such status now not have any then reading up on 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 mozart and the way that um you know musicians were were treated back then and you know even in the film they're talking about well do you have any pupils are you are you you know offering lessons to anybody and i'm like well why i mean uh, why is that their only source of income i mean they're writing these incredible works for kings and monarchs and, and things of that sort and 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 that's just not obviously paying the bills and that they had to essentially offer piano lessons in order to live and that's just such a bizarre thing for us to think about nowadays when you know, you have musicians that are just huge stars and they're just living off of their music and they're raking in the money. And here you have Mozart, one of the greatest musicians in the world, and he's buried in in this mass grave, you know, without even a headstone. Could you imagine that happening to any one of our prominent musicians these days? I mean, we'd be watching it on online, the, the funeral, and there'd be millions of people on Twitter talking about it. And here you... I mean, Mozart, he wanted to be a star. He wanted to be a star. But 
most composers back there, if not all, were just servants, kings and monarchs and whoever would just say, hey, I need you to write this. I need you to write that. You have to write this for my daughter. You have to write this opera now. And they were just loyal to the king or the queen. And that's all they were doing, no matter how brilliant they were. And I'm just, it's, it's absolutely incredible that this music still is performed to this day. You know, it was saved, it was cataloged, and we're able to study it. And now he's a star. It's just sad that he wasn't able to, to see that uh, in his lifetime. His wife, Stanzi, is sort of removed from the spectacle of it all because she is just a normal woman as his wife. She just wants him to help make ends meet. And she tries to, to keep him from being prideful. She tries to keep him focused on work and not only on work, but on profitable work so that they can live without being destitute. Yeah. She loves Mozart. She clearly loves Mozart. And when the opportunity arises for Mozart to be a, a, an instructor for, I believe it's the, the emperor's niece, I think, mm-hmm. she goes to Salieri to show off music because Mozart thinks he's above having to give over music as example of his capabilities as a teacher. And she shows up and Salieri is basically like, okay, I've got a quid pro quo for you. You're going to come later tonight and be ready for some stuff (laughs) or that's the end of your husband's potential career and of course salieri basically shames her when she does show up he he stays true to his vow of celibacy but completely humiliates her and the whole rest of the film she has a little bit of contempt for salieri but really she focuses on helping mozart to make smart decisions about his money and picking jobs that can put food on the table and not just leave lasting musical legacies, which is, I mean, how it ended up. And it drives her to the point where she does leave him because he can't keep away from the drink and he can't work on financially viable music. And so it it hurts her because she does love him, but if he can't take care of himself, he can't take care of her and their child at the time. What did you think about the addition of the the Stanzi scene where she comes back later in the evening? Because that was cut out of the theatrical version. And I think now with that scene in, and although I never really thought that that was a necessary scene, but I guess it makes sense as to why she is so cold to Salieri throughout the movie. And then, of course, why she's crying in the bed afterwards when Mozart comes home and wonders what's going on. But it's such a, it's such a, man, it's such a cold scene. <laughs> Very cold And it was one that when I saw it for the first time on the director's cut, I was like, hmm, did we really need that? And I'm not really sure where you sit on that. And it's not so much to do with the nudity or anything of that sort, but even that, and look, nudity doesn't bother me, but even that just felt like it was like, hmm, I don't think we needed that. And it's the only, I think, cut scene where I'm like, probably not, but I understand its inclusion and then what it does later on in the movie. So I'm kind of torn between it. I don't know if I have any hard feelings on it one way or another. Thinking from sort of Salieri's perspective there, he feels so cheated out of talent at that point after seeing what Mozart's capable of. And he he looks at all those first drafts and tells her to come back. It's like his way of getting back at Mozart. I think is what the sort of plan is. But when the night comes and she shows up, I think he may be even jealous at that point. He has a woman. Mozart has a woman who is willing to do this for him. Yeah. And Salieri doesn't even have that. And so he, he felt this jealousy of Mozart that led to him potentially trying to sleep with Mozart's wife. But then 
in her willingness to do that, he realizes that he doesn't have somebody willing to do that for him. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I was getting that feeling from that scene as well, too. And that's what makes me so torn about it. And, uh, and it, I mean, look, it's, it's really well done. I mean, all yeah. the, everything that was included in the extra 20 minutes is just flawless. This, this movie could be another an hour long, and I, and I would love it. But it was the only one where I was like, I just felt weird about it. But then it makes sense to me. And, and everything that you just said absolutely makes sense. And it's, it's what I was thinking of during my watch of it a, a couple of nights ago as well. And then Stanzi, at the end of the film, she's left and taken the child with her. But she does feel that guilt. And we, as, as the audience, have that heartbreaking juxtaposition of the Confutatis playing after Mozart has dictated it to Salieri. And now it's playing as Constanz, her, her carriage is riding and racing to get back. And we know that he is dying and she doesn't have yeah. long. So we're, we're sort of like on the edge of our seats, just waiting. Is she going to arrive in time? And she does arrive in time, but only just barely to basically see him smile one last time at the side of his son. And then he's gone. Really depressing. And then you do see the return of her contempt for Salieri and it does make sense because of that extra scene that was added in anything else to say about Sanzi I just think I think her performance is underrated she's a well-drawn character and out of all the Academy Award nominations this film got she didn't get one which is shocking Mm -hmm. (laughs) absolutely shocking I just thought she was so perfect so perfect for the role and I get it I understand what she's going through you know she's frustrated by what's happening and why you know, Mozart just can't can't do what's right in order to 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 make sure that they are living properly and and that you know she's able to take care of the kids and the house and and whatever. And so, again, I I don't know what it would have been like if 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 Meg Tilly was in that role, but I mean Elizabeth Barrage was just so great. But every time that Stanzi was on on screen, you know, she commanded attention, not just because of the way she looked, but also I mean, just like everyone else of the every of the other major character. You know, she was so vital and so important, and, she, and, and the performance was fantastic. And um, I thought she was great, and I thought the character was great. You see that scene with Salieri and how far she's willing to go for her husband, and then you also see a sort of opposite side of her character going for the same end result when she stands up to Schikanator at the end of the film as he is pressuring Mozart to write The Magic Flute, which is basically yeah. opera for the popular people not just for royalty, not for the big concert halls, but for the people who pay a dollar or whatever to, to sit and watch it with the, the loud people next to them. She stands up to him. She, she says, he is dying. He's got this other project that is financially viable and you are keeping him away from it and making him work too hard to where he can't recover. And so you see sort of a fire in her standing up to him as well. Yeah, she's she's definitely the strength of the relationship. She's mm-hmm. she's the one that's trying to keep this this everything from from just completely disintegrating. And she's very forceful. She doesn't take any crap from anybody. You know, when they were talking about uh yeah, I think we're writing the magic flute. It's like, yeah, well, okay, that's great, but you know, how much are you going to give us? You know, right. it's not so much a, well, he'll do it and he's going to do a good job. But she's like, I need money now and you better give it to me or he's gonna, right. not going to work on it. And not half the house. You need to give me like what what money can I put in my hand right now? Yeah, <laughs> not later. Exactly. And she commands that respect throughout the movie. That's what I like about her character. You know, especially in that time, it's the female character. It's just really the strength. And I think it's kind of odd to see in that in that time period 
where, you know, women aren't necessarily that respected and she's the one that's really calling the shots and you're not going to look past her. And that's the strength of Stanzi. I don't have any other characters that I have like a lot to say about. Maybe just a couple of shout outs. Do you have anybody that you want to talk about? Um, no, I mean, I brought up Richard Frank, you know, the father, and I thought he just doesn't get the credit that he deserves uh-huh. uh, sitting across that from Marie Abraham during the storytelling. All the secondary characters, you know, everybody in the court, I just love all of them. They're all different and they all have different opinions and casting was absolutely superb. You just don't see the likes of it in, in films today. I agree. The, the only characters I had to maybe shout out real quick, you've got the director and the Kappelmeister who sort of work together along with Salieri to conspire to turn the emperor against Mozart and the emperor himself played by Jeffrey Jones. It's fun to see this actor in a non kind of villain role. <laughs> yeah. He, he wants so badly to like Mozart, but is constantly held back by Salieri or by the Kappelmeister, the director, who are all, again, working together to sort of keep the tradition alive. Like, this is the way opera's always been done. This is right. the rule that you yourself have decreed and trying to keep everything in line so that it doesn't interfere with the way that they prefer things. Uh, so that's fun. Speaking of Emperor Joseph, the scene where they, they're taking the ballet out of uh, one of his operas and, mm-hmm. and then he shows up during a rehearsal and there's no music, but there's just the dance. <laughs> and, you know, he's like, you know, what's going on here? Can you tell me what this is all about? Is this something new? You know, and I love that sequence because it's, you know, the music was taken out. It was ripped out of his, out, out of the score. And then it's funny that the emperor and he's supposed to be the one who's supposed to be in charge of, you know, what's going to be told and what's going to be said and how opera and, and music is going to be dictated throughout the, the, the country. You know, he's the one that's going to go against his own rule and put the ballet back into the piece, which I thought was fantastic. So his little bits in the film are absolutely superb. And, you know, he, you know, famously comes up with the too many notes quote. Or did he? No, it wasn't. It was one of his, uh, who was it? Who said too many notes? There was too many notes. Was it the director? That's right. Yeah. Um, But he just plays it so kind of like straight faced and always gives this mm -hmm sound because he's trying to, I think he's a little bit more open than everybody else is. You know, he's willing to listen especially to some of the more absurd things that Mozart has to, um, to offer. And just kind of, he's not like that true kind of like, you know, like a, like a ruthless king or, or someone who's just going to, hey, what I say stands. He's a little bit more open, and I, and I kind of appreciate that in his character. I especially love the scene where he decides, I'm going to play this march that Salieri <laughs> has composed for Mozart. And he's yeah. plonking along. He says, bring him in slowly. I need some time to practice. <laughs> yeah. It's really charming. I really like him. Yeah, the pacing in this movie, the editing in this movie, I think that's just a well edited, it is extremely well edited sequence. Uh, the uh-huh. whole movie is just perfectly edited as well. And that really helps with, I mean, and it has to, it has to be, the script is one thing, but to know when you're going back to old Salieri, when you're coming back to to Mozart's time and just juggling all of that, and especially within a three hour time frame and, and make it feel coherent and as if no time has passed i mean i was watching this and i was at the like the two and a half hour mark and i'm I'm like i I, this feels like it's been only like 50 minutes and it's like that every time i watch this movie this thing just breezes by and you always want to stay in that world and just the editing is so so perfect so just the pacing is absolutely incredible and another thing that i i mean i you know, this isn't basically characters, but just I, I want to watch this movie one day and just look at the art direction. Uh-huh. I don't want I don't want to care about the characters. I just want to look at every single background 
and everything that they've put into this movie because every aspect of this film is gorgeous, but it's the art direction that is, is one of the true stars of this film. Yeah, and it won the Academy Award for Art Direction. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Now, moving on, we can talk about the music a little bit. I think we've done a pretty good job of just like covering exactly the strengths of the music in this movie. Mm-hmm. But I also have some clips that I'd like to play highlighting what we've already talked about. But I mean, what it boils down to for me mostly is the love and the detail that this movie shows the music of Mozart is basically everything else. The performances is great. The story is great. Everything is great. But I love the love that they show for Mozart's music. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure if there's any other movie that really digs in and dissects the way that music is created or just absolutely falling in love with the music. We've seen, you know, musical biographies all the time. I mean, look, speaking of a film that came out recently, it was like Bohemian Rhapsody. Bohemian Rhapsody, if it was presented the way Amos Deus was presented, that would have been absolutely fascinating a a wonderful character study of those four but also the process of writing songs and that's where Amadeus Amadeus is the ultimate music film and if you don't fall in love with just music overall or even classical music or Mozart's music after seeing this film then I don't know what to say because (laughs) like with the sequence that you're about to show us or have us listen to it's I dare anybody who hasn't seen this film not to to feel something, not to feel that shiver down your spine while they're talking about the process of writing music and the emotion that comes out of it when it's being performed. It's just the, the, the writing for these sequences is simply outstanding. And I just wish as even a critic or a film music critic myself, it's just, I wish I could describe music this way so eloquently. And speaking of that, I have a clip of Salieri describing the Serenade for Winds that we can listen to. On the page, it looked nothing. The beginning simple, almost comic. Just a pulse, bassoons, basset horns, like a rusty squeeze box. <laughs> and then, suddenly, High above it, an oboe. A single note hanging there, unwavering. Until a clarinet took it over. Sweetened it into a phrase of such delight. Okay, I could keep this playing, (laughs) but... (laughs) We would just turn into uh, listening to Mozart podcasts while talking about Mozart. Anyways, it's really outstanding listening to Salieri talk in that detail. And I think it's a great kind of introduction to people to how to listen to music. Like, take one element at a time, focus on that and see, okay, what does that make you feel? What does it make you, what does it remind you of? And to, to not always just imagine it as a whole. And the same thing happens with the Confutati Slater, and I've got clips from that as well. But what I love that this movie does is there will be times when a theme or something is introduced on a piano in one scene. Mozart's playing something in, in the hall when he enters and comes to meet the emperor or something like that. And after he's played it and he's had his little fun with it, as we transition to the next scene, we hear the full orchestration of that theme. And it's, it's wonderful how they introduce music to us that way. 
you have Salieri in one moment explaining the significance of the marriage of Figaro and why it was such an important work of art then, even if it wasn't then seen that way. And then we get to the darker elements of it. When the news of his father's death comes to Mozart, we immediately cut to Don Giovanni and it's super powerful. And we see large portions of the opera in that scene. And it's not subtitled. It's not captioned for us. We probably, most of us don't speak German. We don't exactly know what's happening. We don't understand them, but we, we hear and we see the darkness and we understand the connection to his father. And so even just then, that's a perspective of connecting Don Giovanni to Mozart's father that the, the layperson of the time wouldn't necessarily have had. But we as audience and as witness to the events of this film do understand. Yeah. There's nothing more I can add about that because, uh, you know, you said it just so perfectly. It's the thought process, the thought that went into, and I think I mentioned this just earlier on in the show, of what pieces they were going to choose and how they were going to use it and how they were going to lay it out across the film and how important the music was going to play in the storytelling. It's, it's what any film composer wishes. You know, they wish that their music could have a bigger role in any film, but here it's... If you didn't have it presented this way, you just wouldn't be feeling the same thing while watching the movie. The fact that, you know, Don Giovanni, like you said, was the motif for the father every time he showed up. Or even it was for the um, the costume that he was wearing during the, the one party. It was just always that single kind of sustained chord or note um, every time he showed up. And you just, you just, you knew. It was like, it was like listening to Darth Vader's music in Star Wars. And I am one who doesn't, really appreciate opera I, it's a tough genre of music for me to get into but every single opera scene in this film was mind-blowing and just made me want to um explore more of not so much opera as a whole but mozart's opera and um you know that's a precursor to what film music eventually became it's so well represented in this in this film and um even the recording of the music itself, it's so beautiful. I mean, Eric, Eric Tomlinson recorded the, the, all the music here. And, uh, you know, he's one of the greats. And it, I, I don't know whether Mozart's music has sounded any better than it has on this, on, in, this, uh, in this film. Yeah, I believe they did record for the movie. Like, they didn't take existing Mozart recordings. Right. They, they recorded it. And when the director's cut came out, I believe they re-recorded it. I think is something I read. There were some new pieces, yeah, that were recorded specifically for it. But um, I, from what I recall, most of, if not all of it, was recorded, yeah, before the film. And, gotcha. But uh, just superbly captured. It's just, it's just an incredible sounding album. If you get a chance to listen to it, I do want to play some clips from the Confutati scene because it is my favorite scene from the movie, yeah, and I think it would probably yeah. be a lot of people's favorite scenes from the movie. I'm not going to play the full clips, but these are all like bits of that scene and then I'll play the the full thing put together start with the voices basses first second beat of the first time time common time second beat of the first measure on a second measure second beat you see yes yes G sharp of course yes second beat of the third measure on e you have me. I think so. Show me. Yeah. 
Okay, so there's that one. And then we get some of the instruments. Identical? Of course, the instruments I... doubling the voices. Now, trumpets and timpani, no. trumpets and D. No, no. Listen no, to me. I don't understand. Listen. Trumpets and D, tonic and dominant, first and third beats. This is a scene I was talking about earlier where Salieri just doesn't understand exactly what's happening. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. And then we get to the string ostinato. Now for the real fire. Strings in unison. Ostinato on A, like this. And I can't picture this without Mozart like shaking his fist while he's singing it. You have it. Yes, yes, Okay, and then we get the sola voce. C major. Which means under the breath. Altos and thirds. Altos on C, sopranos above. And then after all that, after we've heard all of those pieces, we finally get the full piece. Okay, so I hope that gives everybody a taste of how wonderful that scene is and just like hearing all the bits and pieces and the, the madness kind of behind or the feverishness is probably a better word in more than one way behind Mozart as he's dictating to Salieri exactly what he has put together in his mind and is putting it out one piece at a time. And then at the end of all of that, after he has died, the lacrimosa from the Requiem plays, which is just the perfect capper. Yeah, I hope everybody listening to it is grinning from ear to ear the way I am. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> every, definitely. Just every time Goosebumps. I, you know what's funny? I made, I, I made this comparison to somebody else, and I'm not sure whether it holds any water, but this scene is to musicians and composers the way the finale to Field of Dreams is to people who love baseball or understand a relationship between a father and son. I compare uh-huh. it because it's, they're just so equally powerful. And and I'm just so glad that I can feel both of them exactly the same way because I just have such a deep appreciation for, you know, what Field of Dreams was trying to tell. But also this scene is, it's just lightning, absolute lightning. It's incredible. It just, and the fact that this happens at the end of the movie where you just completely understand the the genius of of Mozart and what and how he composed music and how quickly he was able to come up with it it was already in his head and you know it kind of reminds me of anyone who talks about other greats like Steven Spielberg who always already has the movies edited in his mind in his head before he even starts filming it's incredible and, I, and I'm just in total awe with with anybody that composed music and I'm not talking about composing it in, in you know like like Mozart, but anybody can write music that can understand music and, and that can do this. It's, it's a totally different language, even though the language is universal. And, and you know, and I, I took music throughout high school and I understood it, but now I, I don't think I do, but I don't know if I could play an instrument again, but just I'm in total awe with anybody that can put 
notes down on paper and, and make it make sense. Yeah, that's a skill I wish I had too. I, I can perform it. I can read it. I can do all those things. But what we witness in this scene and throughout the movie with Mozart, where he's able to just like create things out of his mind and put it on paper and have other people perform it, that is such an awe-inspiring talent. And you know what I was thinking about watching this is, 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 you know, what's sad, though, is that, you know, it's a day and age where you don't have any recordings. And if you're a composer, I mean, how frustrating must it be when you're writing this stuff and then you perform it and you cannot have that recalled back on a recording, right? You can't enjoy that. It's all in your head. And uh-huh. that must be so incredibly frustrating, especially if, you know, you have a failed opera where you're only able to play it four or five times and then never have it played again. At least you think it's never going to be played again. That must be so, it must drive them mad. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go into our final section where we're talking about the impact of the film. And this is stuff that we've been talking a whole lot about this whole time. So yeah. we don't have to linger on any one thing. But I did want to talk a little bit about the, the nature of tradition versus innovation and how each is remembered. At the beginning, Salieri plays those couple tunes on the piano that he had composed for the pastor, and he doesn't recognize any of them. He plays the Mozart, and the Mozart, Mozart, we saw what Mozart was like in his lifetime when we saw the kind of music that he composed. It was very different. It was breaking from tradition. And his, all these years later, is the one that people remember. If you ask any random person on the street, twinkle, twinkle, little star, that's Mozart. There's nothing that anybody, I say nothing, the average layperson probably doesn't recognize anything that Salieri composed in his lifetime. It's not something that has lasted. You look at these people who were surrounding Emperor Joseph, the, the Kapellmeister, the director, and they were so firm in saying, Opera has to be Italian. It has to be this. It can't be this. All that kind of stuff. But now you look at all of Mozart's operas and The Marriage of Figaro, Don Giovanni, The Magic Flute. Those are all among the most performed operas of all time. In fact, I'm pretty sure The Magic Flute is the most performed opera of all time. And it's because Mozart broke from tradition. He was the one who was willing to do something different and to, to maybe not follow the rules that people were trying to set out for him. And it paid off. You'll still find that in any sort of conversation about music today. And, you know, especially in our own kind of niche genre of film music, where there's an entire group that are absolutely deathly afraid of change. They grew up on a certain style of music. And I understand this. I totally get this. I was there years ago where it was like, it's got to sound like John Williams or it's not good enough. It's got to be performed by a 90-piece orchestra and it's not good enough. There's any type of electronics in it, it's not good enough. And you're seeing it, you know, especially with the way Hans Zimmer writes music and he's always trying to do something different, whether it's good or bad, but the amount of hate that he has for trying to revolutionize the sound of film music and move it forward and move himself creatively forward it's really hard for traditionalists to appreciate what he's doing and i'm not saying that he he's perfect every single uh-huh. time and i'm talking about hans zimmer but it's it's really hard for people to break from what they instantly or originally fell in love with and i was there and it's and there's still some of the stuff that i mean i still would prefer listening to uh to a John Williams-styled score over Hans Zimmer, but 
it took me a really long time to appreciate differences in music and and what can be accomplished musically and especially in 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 the film music world and so that all comes back to what you were saying about that particular aspect of Mozart yeah, I agree with that. Just talking about Zimmer for a moment. That's what I do most appreciate about Zimmer, especially nowadays. I would say from like inception onward, every new score he comes out with is innovating in some way. It's him trying something new. And sure, maybe it doesn't work exactly the way he hopes it does, or maybe it works a little too well and it's a little unnerving or whatever it might be. Zimmer is always trying something new. And I definitely appreciate that about him. And I mean, that's what Mozart's doing now. I'm not saying Zimmer's the Mozart of our time. I'm just right. saying I appreciate innovation and, and doing new things yeah and we see how it worked out for salieri sticking to tradition all those years exactly and, and there's and there is nothing wrong with sticking tradition i mean you know john williams lived on tradition for the entire course of his career although he did branch off occasionally but what i do hope is that you know when a composer is writing a score and they are doing something different that it's not just for doing something different. If it helps them creatively, that's great. But it's it's like, what can you do with that different sound or that different type of orchestration or that, or whatever it is, is it going to be something great or is it going to be something good or are you just doing it just because? And, that, and, and that's where I'm torn. I don't want different just because of being different, but that's a whole other aspect of, right. <laughs> of, uh, of, I guess, film music appreciation. There's other things to sort of take away from the film. There's the question of whether all men are equal in God's eyes is a question that Salieri has throughout the film and competition and devotion and the, the madness that results from those things. Salieri constantly trying to take what he views as rightfully his from Mozart or his devotion to God and the fact that he doesn't get what he wants and sort of driving himself mad because of that. And there's also the possibilities. This was a thought I had while watching the other day, the possibilities that might've been open to Salieri had he sought to work with Mozart rather than try and take what Mozart had for himself. Like imagine how Salieri might be remembered. Again, I'm talking about the fictional characters, <laughs> Yeah, how he might be remembered if he was to work with Mozart and they were to, he, he was to help Mozart get the music instructor position with the niece of the emperor and was helpful in giving him resources and in getting, giving him opportunities and how they might've worked together and the joint legacy that they might've had at the end of it and how many more fruitful years of Mozart we would also have as a result. Yeah, it's it's just a simple act of kindness. Be kind to one another. And, <laughs> right. Uh, and I think that if not, then, you know, karma's going to come back and bite you. And, <laughs> yeah, and, and we see know, that. That's what happened here. Yeah. Any other sort of big takeaways for you? Nothing really deep, but I just, what I do appreciate about the movie and from, you know, seeing it back in high school and and for others that have seen it with me, just the appreciation of classical music and or, or orchestral music, it's a really, I think this is what I would listen to. I would listen to orchestral music. It was mostly film scores in, in high school, but, you know, I never was afraid to let people know that I enjoyed this. And I think that some feel that this is like, you can't say that you enjoy Beethoven or Mozart or John Williams or Hans Zimmer. It's just, you can't, you can't let anybody know about that. And it, it, this was a film that I think 
open the eyes of audiences to to this type of music and there's more out there than just your top 40 and that's what i like about this movie is that it's timeless as well i mean generation upon generation are going to see this and they are hopefully going to have the same sort of reaction that i did or others have and that their appreciation their musical appreciation will will grow because of this movie and i think it accomplished its goal back in 1984 it did for me back in the 90s and um you know when eventually my kids are old enough to to see this hopefully they'll get something out of it as well i agree 100 percent on the music appreciation front and then the, there was a thing that i said earlier where if you want to sort of get an idea of how to listen to this kind of music instrumental music just in general this movie provides a nice concept of taking one thing at a time focusing on that and seeing what it accomplishes, and then seeing what adding another thing to that does. And I, I think that's a great way of approaching listening to really anything. I mean, it, you could do it with pop music if you wanted to. Absolutely. Um, and just taking a, look, getting a different perspective on stuff like that. Yep. Now, I don't have any other like big takeaways or anything either, but I did want to just say a couple quick things. I said this in the pre-show, but Simon Callow was the original Mozart in the play uh, when it went to the National Theater, and he plays Chickenator here, so that's a, a fun little bit of trivia. And uh, just while I'm on the the Wikipedia page for the original play, there's been some mighty people to have performed in the roles of Mozart and Salieri over the years. When it first came to Broadway, Ian McKellen played Salieri, and Tim Curry played Mozart, oh, and man. Jane Seymour played Zanzi. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty insane. And Mark Hamill has also played Mozart at one point. In fact, I think he was considered for the film for a while before Foreman decided on Pulse, which would have been very different considering he was in the middle of Star Wars at the time. Yeah, he was just coming off of Return of the Jedi. So that would have been something else. Yeah. But anyways, I just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> Fun facts. The only other one that I uh, you know, was watching the making of and the fact that they were actually filming in one of the opera houses in, uh, in Prague, I think it's called the Estates Theater. And I think Mozart even performed in that theater. But they were what they wanted to do with the lighting was to light everything with like the thousands upon thousands of candles that they would have at the time. Uh -huh. And the building was so fragile that I think even the firefighters refused to sign waivers and they were just kind of like hoping that like nothing would burn down because this place was would have been instantly flammable um, if, a, you know, a candle had gotten loose. But the fact that they were in an actual opera house, one that Mozart was in, and they were filming with actual, you know, they were lighting with actual candles and just every single shot was there was a chance that this place could burn down. I cannot believe they let them get away with it, but just the authenticity <laughs> of the, the venue. I mean, there's some of my favorite shots are just those, those head on shots of the conductor, right? It's low, it's uh -huh. low down, but you can see the entire theater in the background while uh, Mozart's conducting or Salieri's conducting. And those just static shots, it's so simple but yet so brilliant. And you can see all those candles out up on the ceiling. And I cannot believe, I cannot believe they did it and that they got away with it and they didn't burn this historic building down. It's, uh, I don't know if you can get away with it today. Right. I was just looking it up. It is called the Estates Theater. Okay, good. And it's where Don Giovanni originally premiered. Ah, yeah. Well, I would love to go there one day. I would yeah, that'd be it. crazy. Yeah, that'd be awesome. 
Well, I think that's everything. So that is the end of the 97th episode of Cinescope. Thank you, Eric, for bringing this movie back into my life. <laughs> oh, hey, no problem. And thank you for, uh, for, 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 you know, saying that we were going to do this. Cause I, again, it gave me another excuse to, to watch this movie again. So I, I really thank you very much for that, for, uh, for offering that up. Yeah. I hope it gave lots of people opportunity to watch this movie. I hope again. people do. I mean, if you haven't <laughs> seen this, find it and, and just, Again, if you're a music, even if you're not a music lover, you, I guarantee you're going to enjoy this film. It's, yeah. like I said, I think it's flawless. It's a rare, perfect movie. Everything about it is incredible. Yeah, considering how much I love both this movie and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, I need to explore more uh, of Foreman's filmography. Yeah. Yeah. I know he he's what, Czechoslovakian? Is that, or Polish, maybe? Uh, I don't know what his I'm looking it up right is. now. Um, he, yeah, he's Czech American. Okay. Um, and so he, I know he has a lot of Czech films as well. I, I don't, I, I might check those out eventually too, but, uh, he's got those few American films that I, I'm very interested in. So contact for the show. You can find it on Facebook, facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast and at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Please consider dropping a rating and a review on iTunes. I haven't received it. We haven't received any reviews on iTunes in a long time or Apple podcasts rather. And it would be great to get a couple. That'd be awesome. Uh, and if you have any feedback or ideas that you'd like to share directly with me, you can email thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. Now, Eric, where can people find you online and your work? Sure. Uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Cinsound Radio. You can find me on Facebook at Cinematic Sound. And, of course, you can find Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net or wherever you uh, find great podcasts. Highly recommend Cinematic Sound Radio, everybody. It's a great way to discover film music and to hear great conversations about film music. Definitely highly recommend. Thank you. Appreciate it. The best place to find me is on Twitter, at Chadadada. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. You can also find my old podcast that is finished now. It's called American Workplace, and we talked about The Office from NBC. And you can find that where podcasts can be found in workplacepodcast.com. But again, I have launched a new podcast in the recent weeks. It's called Crossroads of Destiny. I am watching through Avatar The Last Airbender with two of my best friends. We get to sit around a table once a week and talk about the show, which is awesome. And I hope people go on the journey with us. Whether you've seen the show or not, we're not spoiling anything going forward. And I promise you, I promise you, if you give the show a chance, it is on Netflix, you will find some enjoyment in it. So consider go checking that out as well. Uh, show notes and contact information for this show can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is it. Thank you once again, Eric. It was great talking to you once again and to explore something a little bit different than Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you, everybody. This was Cinescope. Have fun and celebrate movies. <laughs> <laughs> that's excellent yeah. that was a, that, that, that's one of mozart's greatest pieces <laughs> oh absolutely it was
all of all of the Indiana Jones mu- music <laughs> straight out of Mozart. <laughs> In fact, everything you listen to is secretly Mozart. That's right. That's Who right. Knew? <laughs> that's awesome. That is so yeah. good. <laughs> I had that one button. I had to push it. That's great. It's the only one I didn't push today. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's super. That's super. 